Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. Now I can stop jibber-jabbering and rejoice (laughs) in having with us today the inimitable, astonishing Catherine May, one of the most beautiful writers working right now, um, and one of my very, very favorite writers of all time. Um, I'll let her tell you more about her (laughs) her career, but um, her latest book, Enchantment, you can see she's got a copy behind her. I've got a copy here. I've got a copy on my Kindle. I've got a copy on Audible. I've got a copy (laughs) in my brain. And I keep scribbling bits of it on pieces of paper because um, it's magnificent and everybody should go get it and read it. So uh, I am going to get my Hang on, I have to get my document with all Catherine's quotes on it. All right. So <laughs> instead of it's not you, intimidating at all. <laughs> I'm just see, here's my plan. This is what how it serves my narcissism. I'm just gonna take over completely. But then I also serve myself by reading your words, which are much better than mine could be. Not true at all. Ah, so first of all, I just want this to be a conversation. Usually I jabber for a few minutes and then we take questions, but today we're in a different format and I would love to just talk to you, Catherine. Is that what you go by, Catherine? I'm, yeah, I'm a Catherine. I go for the full length the of the name. full name, name. Catherine <laughs> the Great. Okay. So I first read, um, the first book of yours that I read was The Electricity of Every Living Thing. Is that what it's called? The, That's what it's things. called. Yeah, it once got called in a British magazine, The Electricity of Every Loving Thing, which made it sound a bit like a sex toy catalog. It does. <laughs> There's a whole branding line you no, could no, go I into know. now. I could, I could go into another business, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's not, now the book we're, we're telling you to get here is Enchantment, but you must also get The Electricity of Every Living Thing, which is about Catherine taking a, a, a very multi-layered walk through the English countryside a long, long walk, and also sort of discovering things about herself in midlife that were quite surprising. So do you mind like introducing yourself yeah. this way, just because that's how I met you? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the backstory. Um, yeah. So I learned when I was 39 that I was autistic. Um, and that, I mean, I, I did it by going on a long walk and, and without the walk, I would never have realized because mm. I needed that time to oh process so many stories I've been telling myself and to clear the way um and and to make space for that that new information to come through um and so that's I get how old am I now I'm coming up to 46 so I've known that for seven years and it I can't explain the extraordinary life-changing power of learning that about yourself when you've yeah. not known what you are for the for your entire life yeah. so yeah and of, that's, of that's course there's there's a huge spectrum and, and there are people who have very severe disability based on this but you like as you say in the, in that mm. book nobody would have guessed no. and I, I read it I was just like oh oh <laughs> I, I went online I took the test now I, I turned out mildly autistic okay but When you took the test, you thought it would be mild and it was actually quite pronounced. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, the the thing about nobody would have guessed was really more because nobody thought that girls were autistic at the time Mm. at all. Um, And 
I mean, all the very clear signs were there throughout my childhood. I was, I exhibited some really classic signs of autism. You know, I stopped talking for a year when I was three. Mm. Um, I had severe kind of sensory problems. I had all of the mental health problems that come with being autistic. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it it was all absolutely there. But but it wasn't, the information just wasn't available. And so um, 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 when I got my diagnosis, my mum said, I knew there was something. (laughs) 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 Um, It explained my whole family to me. So it relates to this book because when you say the electricity of every living thing, that is not metaphorical. Is is that correct? That you actually can feel a charge when yeah. you touch things, because yeah, I mean, every, we know everything where the, a current. Yeah, right. Everything alive is yeah. is powered by electricity. What does it feel yeah. like to you? It depends. I mean, I it, it's kind of a good barometer for how I feel about it as mm. well. Because if it's a if it's a thing that I like, the electricity can feel very friendly and you know mm. a lovely tingle or a gorgeous kind of flowing circuit. Uh, Mm. But if it's something I'm less keen on, it can feel a lot like an electric shock. And, you know, a good example is I hate being touched by someone I don't Mm -hmm. know and with Mm -hmm. no warning. And if that happens to me, I can feel it burning on my skin for several hours afterwards, like there's an an imprint left. And of course, if if you're in a crowd, that's happening kind of permanently. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) One of the reasons I'm prying like this is that I think that the audience for the gathering room, um, I said a couple of weeks ago that I think if we all took the test for, are you a highly sensitive person, all our computers would explode because yeah, yeah, I tend toward that myself. And I think the people who are interested in what I'm interested in are also that way. But you Mm. you go in this book um, into the uses of enchantment. Well, that's the title of another book, <laughs> but it's called Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. So the, the two things that I've been hearing from the audience of the gathering rooms over and over and over is the mm. questions are freighted and loaded with fear, anxiety, and overwhelm. And you speak to that so beautifully. But knowing that you're extremely sensitive, because... I think there's a vague and fuzzy line between a highly sensitive person and an autistic person often. I'm not, I don't I'm know. not sure there even is a line, to be honest. Yeah, I, don't, I, I, think I don't know. I think it's just different people preferring different language quite often. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that comes with its own interesting abilities and its own torments. But mm. it also comes, I believe, with a dose of enchantment, with yeah, a tendency toward so. the mystery and and the magic of mm. the of the natural world in particular yeah. and by magic i simply mean the that which we do not understand yeah um, and, the, and the feeling of something being like magnetically fascinating as well i think oh when yeah thinking about magic yeah oh and and in this book uh you go into the hierophanies is that the word that yeah hierophany yeah talk a bit about those about that mm. because i found that really compelling and i think the audience will too yeah, so uh, hierophany is a term uh, coined by Mercia Eliard uh, to basically describe these incursions of the sacred into the everyday world. So they're these objects or places which we imbue with sacred meaning. Mm-hmm. And for the person that understands them, they not, might not be readable to everybody, but for the person that understands them, they unpack layers and layers of sacred meaning and sacred feeling. Um, 
and I wanted to think about what our hierophanies are because then they're, they're no longer the traditional hierophanies that we were maybe given when we were growing up you know the churches or the mm-hmm. uh, you know the, these places that that we were told were sacred but maybe didn't always key so well with us but I I think that we're beginning to create new hierophanies now and I think we urgently mm-hmm. need to actually yeah desperately I love you talking about just the weight of a stone in your hand and the the sacredness of um, of its trying to return to the earth, to gravity. Yeah. So this book goes through uh, the elements, uh, earth, water, fire, and air, I believe in that. <laughs> I always order. have to think really hard about it, yeah. <laughs> and um, it's about going from the anxiety that so many gathering room people are always talking about into enchantment and almost using the susceptibility to fear and anxiety and burnout, which is a really key component of this book, um, using that as um, a way to establish hierophanies in our everyday lives and through the connection with whatever parts of nature we can find. Um, Usually we start the gathering room with a little meditation. I, I would love to do it at the end and see how it feels to you because uh, I did it once and then everybody, I could feel it. I feel it like if people are responding to me on the computer, I feel it as a okay. as yeah, an electric sure. force. Yeah. And um, it 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 is a way that energies join on this particular broadcast sometimes. So I'd love to do that mm-hmm. later, but I, I really want to mm-hmm. trace um, with a few quotes that I'm going to read myself <laughs> because I I will I just want to steal them from you. They're so good. Take them. Take, take them. From <laughs> anxiety and burnout into a place of art, enchantment, magic, and nature. Which is actually I'm writing a book that's about anxiety and how it's on the left side of the brain, and you have to go into the mystery on the right side. And so I'm okay. taking a sort of neurological, sociological approach to it. But Catherine's is poetic, and in being poetic, <laughs> it is itself. This book is itself a hierophany for sure. And then some of her prose is so beautiful that I'm just going to read it. So first she talks about um, the burnout and fear of our incredible, um, painful, uh, I got the wrong quote. There's the, <laughs> okay. So there's something in the book about this, the intense fearfulness of our age. Could you just talk to the, us oh, about that? Yeah. Yeah, I just I kind of compare us to rabbits in in this That's time it. in our life, and this idea so many that, predators. Yeah, that we've been running like rabbits, and and you know rabbits have this white tail that flashes to signal the next person to run behind them, and we've got stuck in this cycle of signaling fear. Yes, and we do that over the internet all the time, like endlessly, and and each one of us is picking this fear up. And passing the fear onto the next person. And, and I said, like, we're in the business of running now. We're just yes. constantly running away from this, this world that seems so terrifying to us right now. Yeah. And that actually is, it's a, an interesting neurological phenomenon where when you get mm. stuck in a certain part of the brain, it just escalates anxiety without yeah. ever bringing it down. And so it is like we're continuously surrounded by predators and having a flight response. And it mm. never goes away. Now in the electricity of every living thing, didn't you say that a hundred years ago, even if you were born with autism, there wouldn't Mm. be this level of clamor. There wouldn't be this level of 
constant uh, barrage yeah. of information and sensation and mm. uh, intensity. Do you think that yeah, adds to the anxiety? I, I really do. I begin to think that we're living in a kind of neuro-hostile age almost. Yes. But the level so of good. input we're receiving all the time is so great and so enervating. And even if even when we're enjoying it, it's tiring us. Yeah. And you know what? Like autistic people like me are the pit canaries in this. We're the early signal that it's got yeah. too uncomfortable. Because I, I now think that the neurotypical world is really understanding what, what we've been talking about for a long time, which is that contemporary life is unbearable. Yes. And and people are exhausted, not because they've been doing anything wrong or necessarily even overworking or, you know, like burning the candle at both ends. They're exhausted because they're constantly processing so yeah. many inputs and it's so yeah. noisy. Yeah. And one of those inputs is fear, which is absolutely exhausting. And it never gets spent out either. So our, our bodies are primed for this event that never quite happens. It's endlessly deferred and it's toxic to us, I think. Yeah. I think so. And it, it consumes us. And that's, mm. that's what I did um, bring here is a quotation about what, how, how that happens, how that burns you out over time. So Catherine writes, I know that I'm on a first name, I am on first name terms with burning, with blazing high and burning out. Here I am back in that cycle of fuel conflagration of scorched earth. The loss that it brings, the complete collapse of self is always agonizing. But there's something I secretly like about it, too. After all, the bare ground invites a new kindling. To have nothing to lose, you first have to lose everything. Mm. So even though this fear is consuming us, when I read that, that, which comes later in the book, I thought, okay, this is, it could be that we're being set on fire for good reason. Yeah. It, I interviewed um, Lama Rod Owens for my podcast really? um, a couple of months ago. And he crystallized that thought for me because he's, you know, I said, this feels like the end times. And he said, it is, it's mm. the end of something. And it's of something that we all know is going wrong. Yeah. He said, the pain is letting it burn down and, mm. and coming through into that next age. And he said, you know, there, there will be suffering from that. Yeah. But we know as a community that we also want that that era to pass and for a new one to come in and i and i think that really made a lot of sense to me because we're we're feeling those flames yeah he he described yeah. it as an apocalypse yeah um, yeah it I, is yeah and yeah. i loved how you uh, for example you also addressed in this book uh going during the pandemic to zoom meetings that had to do with the consciousness of racial oppression yeah and yeah speaking of burning of the intense anxiety of that that creates and the desire mm -hmm. to go away from it but then ultimately you started leaning into it and it was as though you were like let's burn this down let's burn this down only we can avoid it individually but when we get together and it start we start to see the parameters of what we've done to each other mm -hmm. if we can sit in that yeah. um one Buddhist nun I love says, if we can sit in the falling apartness without polarizing, it creates the ground for something completely fresh. Mm. So I was thinking mm, about I how guess, yeah. fire, there are fire-based yeah, ecosystems. <laughs> there are trees yes, in California. Absolutely. 
that require burning and yeah, there they are have traditional to be ways of yeah that's right and there are there are very traditional rate, ways of life that involve burning the ground at the end of every season to mm-hmm. make space for the new growth yeah and yeah. i i mean i in lots of ways i'm kind of comfortable with the burning i'm comfortable with everything falling apart because it's a it's a release and it requires yes. surrender but of mm. course it does require a kind of trust that there is another life after that and i and yes. i think that's what people really struggle with that they have to endure the burning before they can see what the next life is yeah um and and that's that's the terror isn't it i think that we we yeah. don't trust life to make itself again and of course it yeah. does and that's it's interesting that's a more existential fear it's a deeper fear mm. than all the clamor around us but when we when we decide to turn away from the clamor and we start to feel ourselves burning then there's a deeper fear, but it seems to me to be a more authentic fear because it really, yeah. the burning it's of existential, the, isn't it? It's yeah. The burning deep. of the ego. Yeah. 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 And, and, and yeah. to me, there's a deep spirituality in the way you talk about that, that is not at all religious, which really appeals to me. And one of my <laughs> favorite passages. All right. This one I have read to everyone I know um, because I've been meditating for years and years is wonderful, but mm. I also had, a bunch of children and a, I was a professor for a while like you I had to go through my degree program while I had three kids and so you write <laughs> yeah you write about um meditating and how it would be great to be one of those amazing heroic people who go off to a, a cave for 12 years but you're also a, a working mother a working parent yeah yeah. And so the, here's a long piece, but I'm going to read this because I just loved it so much. Few of the wise souls who have devoted years to contemplating the structure of the cosmos could tell us how to practice in circumstances like this, like, like the ones you were living in. I want them to come and learn what I know too, and what many other patient souls could share. I want them to experience the discipline of forever being pulled away from the interior always feeling that the work of the mind and the body is just out of reach. They would have to live through the exhaustion and the frustration and the isolation and choose to wholeheartedly give care over and over again, rather than walk away. I want them to strive to attain the mental and physical discipline of getting out of bed in the middle of the night and still finding gentleness rather than fury. I want them to understand that they know nothing until they have endured endless spiritual deferment, the balm of contemplation forever at one remove. (gasps) (laughs) I think that was one of my more rebellious. (laughs) But what you're doing here is you're burning patriarchy and you're burning it for anyone who wants to be a participating caregiver. Because the whole economic structure takes us away from care and spiritual structures follow it structure no longer acknowledges how care is even going to take place I mean I, I think there was a you know I grew up in an era when women were expected to stay home and give care yeah. we're no longer even expected to do that we, we are now obliged it to, for both both members of a couple to work because otherwise no one can afford to live yeah and uh, sorry who is looking after the children or the elderly parents or the sick people yeah. like we haven't yeah. got a plan and yeah. Yet we are endlessly told that that those of us who are giving care and who go back and do it again and again are somehow like 
it, it's spiritually and intellectually inadequate. And I, I mean, wow, that's a burning that really needs to happen. And yeah. and that actually goes to, speaks to your point of like a burning as a spiritual gateway. You know, yeah. when we burn this down, we open up this space in which we can honor the fullness of our wisdom and existence and, yeah. and knowledge and be there with no shame you know yes. take ourselves into that space and, and fully inhabit it and i yeah i get quite excited by the me too yeah. <laughs> right now we have we have in my most intimate circle a two-year-old who's going through a big tantrumy developmental stage and a beloved matriarch who is literally passing away right now there's a deathbed watch and to take time away from all the stuff we're supposed to do in this culture, all the stuff that is considered worthwhile, and to be there at those incredibly crucial moments of human caring is itself a burning. And I think what you were saying to me, to all of us out there who are resonating with this, is if you've been doing that, you've been doing spiritual practice. You've been... It doesn't matter if you meditate, Actually, if you've been doing that, yeah. if you feed your cat every day, that's spiritual practice. I'd go further. I'd say it's spiritual leadership. You know, yeah. like what we show to our children when we bring gentleness to them instead of force is a, a sort of a, an opening of a pathway for their future life too. And that's exponential. That's how we pass it on. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so vital and so undervalued. So there's that, and that's brilliant in this. Well, it's brilliant in all your work, but there's another way as well. Like there's there's the burning of of the of the spiritual leader who's trying to be exist in a materialistic society, but there's also the mystery, the enchantment, the art that you bring in, and you talk about how your art sort of punched its way through your resistance. And I, I just wanted these are shorter, but you you wrote. Writing kept coming back to me, punching its way out of whatever grave I dug it. It loomed insistent at my window. It rattled my door. I just couldn't kill it. There was no silver bullet, no stake, no incantation that would slay it. Writing had plans for me, and my resistance was futile. Oh, I know there are people out there just taking a huge deep breath. Because something's, something's got plans for them too, for all of us. I mean, it, it speaks really strongly to your work. I think that bit, but it, it is this sense of, uh, you know, I was denying my integrity there completely, mm. completely. I was deliberately trying to squash down yeah. the, the thing that I knew was my absolute life's mission. And I thought it was silly and embarrassing and not like not a good enough goal not not a certain enough yeah. goal not a serious enough goal yeah and yeah. I did everything I could to not be a writer for the longest time and then by the time I realized that I had to be a writer I'd got really bad at writing <laughs> I hadn't taken care of it you know I'd been a good writer as a child but that did not convert into me being a good yeah. writer as an adult once I'd taken 10 years off of it. And so I had to absolutely learn to fail at being a writer before I became a decent one. Can I read one more quote? And then I, I want to talk more about this. <laughs> I've been going through this because of the, the when I, in my, in my own research, realized I needed to go into my right brain, I tried to reclaim my own childhood art, which was visual drawing and painting. So I've been doing, and it, I had much the same experience and this 
paragraph, whatever it is you do. Last week, I talked about how the new neurological research shows that, that participating in the arts, whatever your art is, changes your brain in ways that are very felicitous, very healthy, and your whole biochemistry changes. But this is what it takes to do that in a culture that does not value it. Catherine writes, uh, the skills of deep play, which is where art comes out, took far longer to learn than anything I'd studied before. They meant asserting the awkward right to time, space, and solitude, making a shameful claim on my own creativity. They meant learning to trust my long forgotten gut instinct and to feel a yearning for my own work. They meant putting aside time to do things that seemed pointless to the outside world. They meant confronting my stultifying, stultifying terror of failure and learning to enjoy eviscerating mediocre mistake-ridden work. It was long and slow and uncertain and quite often boring. And then you yeah. say it was all worth it. And let me tell you, to read Catherine May on the page is to be is to feel a really holy gratitude that's that she did this that you did this thank you Catherine. i just <laughs> i because couldn't know i couldn't know <laughs> you couldn't not you couldn't not and yet i just you you've been so brave and so persistent and you have such a high standard not only for your art but for the soul of it and for the magic of it yeah absolutely yeah and I know that everyone out there listening to this is starving for that. I think the world is starving for it. I, you know, the, I, the people that talk to me about their writing, nine times out of 10 say to me, like the, the question comes down to, am I actually allowed to do this? You know, and, yes. and that can get phrased in loads of different ways. It can be, why are you allowed to do this? Mm. <laughs> or it can be i deserve the time how do i make the time or it can be when when do i do you know like and all of those questions are basically the same thing which is you know yeah. am i entitled to this thing that drives me yeah and the answer is always like yes right now like right yeah. now is the time that you do it and also you've got to be ready for it to take a long time but you start yeah. that commitment right away and it will be painful. I mean, that's, I think that's the, <laughs> that's the dark side of having a practice like this is that you have to go in and, and kind of, you, it is like going into like the deepest, most painful therapy because mm -hmm. you will confront every difficult part of yourself in the process yeah. of making the work that you are desperate to make. And you have to go in facing that uncertainty of the new life as well. And, and knowing that it, you might never become the, the thing that you're envisaging right now because you just don't know where it's going to lead you. You don't know. But it would lead so, somewhere. So ultimately, this is a book about faith, um, about fear and faith and about the transformation of the world the trans through the transformation of individual human consciousness, which then extends itself in incredible artistic work like this book. And it becomes a shared possession that we that can we can I hang on to this book like an island that I've found <laughs> on a long swim, right? Like, ah, oh, because when you read it, it is self-evidently true. That's the thing about great poetry. And and you are a poet, even though you write prose for this. Yeah, I started as a poet, yeah. <laughs> and it 
it lands in the soul and it is irrefutable. It just clicks into place and your whole body and, and mind and spirit know it's true. And that's the state of integrity. You write from there and you challenge culture from there and you challenge our everyday demons and you find the, you find the angels, you find the, the hierophanies everywhere and, oh, and well, show them to you. us. That's so now generous way of putting it. Thank you. I just, I, your work is <laughs> phenomenal. I, I just am so grateful for it. So now uh, usually I can see people's comments. I can't see anybody out there right now, but I still want to do a, a final um, meditation uh, and just introduce you to this one, Catherine. And it comes from a neurologist at Princeton, but it's, it's an odd exercise that they show puts the brain into a really interesting space. And speaking of space, that's what it focuses on. Most of our physical matter is made up of space. Uh, so your atoms are full of space. And if you turn your attention from the matter in you to the space and from the sound to the silence and from the motion to the stillness, it it, it shifts the brain. So I usually, this is how I lead the meditation. It's, you have to start with a question. And the question is, can I imagine the space in the distance between my eyes? Can I imagine the space in the tissue inside my chest? Can I imagine the silence beneath everything I'm hearing? Can I imagine the stillness that holds everything that's moving? That, that changes my electricity when we do this meditation. Mm, and thank you for, thank you for participating in it. It is a way into the, it is way onto holy ground. And another way mm. onto holy ground, all of you is Catherine May's work. I, I just want to thank you one more time and say, please keep writing. We need you. The world needs oh, you. And thank you so much. Um, it's such an honor to have welcomed you here on the gathering room. I, I hope we meet again yeah. soon. It's an absolute honor to be here. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Catherine. Bye, everybody. See you next week on the gathering room. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, a few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025. But I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash 
compass, and we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. 